Hello and welcome to The Crux. I'm Tyler Lambert, Editor-in-Chief of Women's Agenda. And today I have the privilege of speaking with Professor Megan Davis, a proud Cobble Cobble leader from the Burrungum Nation in southwest Queensland. Megan is not only a distinguished academic, but also a passionate advocate for human rights, currently serving as Professor of Law and the Pro Vice-Chancellor Indigenous at the University of New South Wales. Megan has dedicated her career to championing the rights and recognition of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. One of her most significant contributions was as a key architect of the Uluru Statement from the Heart. Her expertise lies in constitutional law, international law and human rights, where she's played a pivotal role in advancing the rights of Indigenous people, particularly in the realm of constitutional reform. Megan's ability to bridge the gap between academia and activism has been instrumental in driving positive change. In addition to her academic achievements, she's held important positions within national and international organisations, including serving as a member and chair of the United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues. Through her work, she's earned immense respect and influence on the global stage, shaping the discourse on Indigenous rights. Of course, Professor Megan Davis continues to be a driving force for issues like self-determination, treaty and constitutional recognition. Currently, she's passionately endorsing an Indigenous voice to Parliament, seeing it as a crucial step towards true reconciliation. So I read a piece recently that shared that when you were 12 years old, your single mum brought home a copy of John Kerr's Matters for Judgment. And it is hard to imagine a 12-year-old girl being so caught up in a former Governor-General's autobiography and finding that compelling reading. Um, But I read also that you read it cover to cover and this started your fascination with um, the Australian Constitution. Can you tell us about what did capture you in those early days and what made you kind of want to pursue it? It's a good question. I remember, I mean, obviously the book played a pivotal role um, because it's kind of in my formative memory. Um, but I'm also acutely aware that the way people's memory <laughs> memories are formed and what you remember and what you filter out and all that sort of things, it's not particularly precise. But, you know, the book, I suppose, spoke to me because I suppose you're little at the time and my mum wasn't the kind of mum that was going to say, hey, don't read that because that's the Governor-General everybody hates. She never <laughs> said that um, because he sacked Whitlam. But she just kind of let us read stuff and come into stuff the way that you know, I guess people should without any kind of preconceived cognitive bias either way. Um, but I thought it was fascinating because, of course, it was a constitutional crisis. I don't understand why I was interested in politics and constitutional crisis. I was a pretty serious kid that was always very interested in the world around me and the world in general. So, I, you know, I watched a lot of news. I read a lot of news. I was more more interested or driven by Australian political news at a young age. And so that kind of just fit with that, I suppose. And I guess in terms of being poor and living where we did and being part of the underclass, my mum, for her, it was really important for us to understand the way in which decision-making in Canberra and political decision-making of parliaments, both in Brisbane and in Canberra, have these acute impacts upon poor people and and needing to be across all of that because it can so profoundly change your life every three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can impact upon life choices for young people about what you can and can't do. For example, when Gillard reduced the age that single parent mums would have to go to work, 
that was really dramatic because that would have meant my mum couldn't stay at home and supervise mm-hmm. the household in the way that she did. And in a low socioeconomic area, that's a really important thing because there can be a lot of antisocial behaviour, etc. All of these decisions just have these impacts upon what your life choices are. And so, yeah, anyway, that's a very long way to, to answer your question, but I think... Um, yeah. There were so many environmental issues that came into play and I suppose the constitution shapes all of that. It shapes the distribution of power across the federation. It it decides who does justice and police and who does education and, and you need to know who does what to kind of understand what's going on with that big big picture decision making. Yeah, absolutely. What was it like as a, a young girl and and obviously someone who was clearly academic and really informed and smart, really bright, um, but reading about policy reform and the constitution and recognising that the voice of First Nations people was excluded. Yeah, I, I, I can't remember the moment I kind of learnt it other than to say that like growing up, you know, you, you become increasingly aware as you get a little bit older of the kinds of things that had happened to your family that, you know, happened because of racism and race. And and I suppose, you know, when you grow up and you learn about, so in my family history, we have a South Sea Islander history and we have all background um, or culture and we have our Aboriginal culture and also my mum, who's non-Indigenous. Um, who's not a very Ancestry.com mum, I have to say. She's never really particularly fluent in that from her perspective. But in terms of being Aboriginal, it's something that you start to learn by, you know, listening as kids to adults talking or children talking about things that the adults are talking about. And, you, you know, you develop that keen sense that we were treated differently or are treated differently. For example, in our family, family used to talk a lot about going back to Cherbourg. And Cherbourg is this reserve three hours north of Brisbane where my great-grandmother was moved to in 1901 after Federation. And the reserve and mission system was in most states and territories in, in what we call in Australia the Protection Era, which is a period of compulsory racial segregation. It probably went from about mid to late 1800s right up until about the 1960s in some cases. I mean, the whole system was really dismantled once the Racial Discrimination Act came in with Whitlam. Um, But it's a lengthy time to have that system. So my family was removed to there. And so you used to hear people talk about it and you used to hear about people living on the mission or reserve. It's their reserves if their state run, their mission if their church run. This one was run by the Salvation Army. But you hear about the deprivations is what I remember, you know, like access to fruit, access to fresh food, having freedom of movement and all of those kinds of things. So in terms of the constitution in and of itself, I guess when I started practising law for the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Commission as a young lawyer, um, I started to pay more attention in a kind of technical, structural sense to the limitations or the barriers to a flourishing um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kind of sector it's probably then when I remember having a fight with one of the junior other Aboriginal councils, he was junior council like me, on um, Section 5126 and the race power. And I remember thinking, 
oh, shit, I don't know enough about this um, and going and reading it. And so mm. really just kind of when I started practising, I think, in my early 20s. Yeah, yeah. You've spoken a little bit about your mum and um, I'm keen to hear, you know, how her influence shaped your leadership pathway. Yeah, no, she she's an exceptional character and she's she's a little bit of a mini superstar now because people stop me everywhere to talk about my mum. Um so <laughs> people really love her. She's always been an incredible influence on my life. She's just always been that kind of formative figure in my in my life. She's an intellectual giant, you know, like we grew up with her reading poetry and you know, Western literature, but also Aboriginal literature. She was an English teacher, had taught French right up until her 60s and 70s. She was in the University of Third Age teaching Spanish and French and books. And she's just always been this brilliant character in our lives. And so I suppose it's funny, we, us siblings now in our 40s, we talk about our different relationships with mum. And I suppose I was very, not intimidated by her, but I was impressed by her knowledge and mum used to read a lot. Like she would just devour novels. Even if now, like she's 84, but if she ever has these stints in hospital, like you buy her books and she'll just, that's how she gets back to being normal and well is just reading. And um, mm. so, you know, the house was just filled with books and she she takes reading very seriously and it's hard to really convey what a really very special person that she is and you know helped a lot of our friends growing up and neighborhood kids and you know she'd have Brody's notes and you know give them to kids and buy lots of things from secondhand bookstores and walk walk people through poems and novels and so she's just always really very helpful and giving in terms of that kind of thing as well but um yeah, yeah just the sacrifices she made for us five kids it's um I always say to her, it's extraordinary what you what you did do and what you gave up to yeah. make sure that we flourished, yeah. Mm-hmm. And opened up so many doors for yeah. you to be interested and engaged in, in different things. She, not, she, was never, she wasn't much of a feminist. Like I still say she favours my brothers. <laughs> you know, siblings <laughs> have disputes and, you know, there's a few disputes going on now, but she's really empathetic to the male experience and perspective and really harsh on me and my little sister and I always laugh that she's produced such really strong feminists and she's surrounded by all these granddaughters um who are also really really strong (laughs) um and so I just I find it funny too that you know we always say she kind of favored the boys but um in her kind of very strident and disciplined kind of relationship with us that she produced us when um, she can be very old school. (laughs) Yeah. I want to turn to something a little bit different, but obviously incredibly timely and topical. You have been a key architect to the Voice to Parliament. Is the proposed legislation what you'd hoped it would be? And and do you feel there are any shortfalls? So with the Voice to Parliament, I was on the team of negotiators for the provision that will be put to the Australian people that is in that piece of legislation that has been passed um it's a pretty robust provision it's you know what we wanted it strikes a really good balance in terms of parliamentary sovereignty and the capacity of this voice to venture an opinion on laws and policies that are passed so 
you know, and I think 96, 7% of the legal profession agrees with us. So that's important. So we're, we're happy with where it is. You know, when, we, when you go to a referendum, you're asking Australians to vote on a principle, which is what we're doing. With many institutions in the Australian constitution, the bricks and mortar, the detail is left to the parliament at a later date. And so we're happy with what the principle looks like, which is the right of this entity to make representations, which is in effect a letter to particular entities like the executive and the parliament on things that relate to our issues. Um, There's no obligation on anyone to read it or reply, but um, we say just the very act of making a representation will be significant um, because Australians will know about it because Mm -hmm. they've said yes to the principle. So, yep, we are happy with where it is. What are some of the biggest myths and misconceptions that you would like to dispel around The Voice? Well, there's so many. I think Australia was very late to the misinformation, disinformation game. Um, And as The Guardian has recently shown, we have now entered into the Australian political space the kind of um, disinformation experts, such as the companies they've revealed as belonging, coming from Texas, who have been pushing conservative agendas in in America um, and influenced the kind of Trump election as well. Um, They're very good at misinformation and disinformation. So um, they are running four campaigns. One is actually a news site on Facebook called Referendum News, but it's all negative. But there's three no campaigns and one of them is a fake Aboriginal campaign that says the reform is not strong enough and the other two campaigns say the reform is too strong that it will destroy Australian democracy. So it's very clever and a lot of money behind it. So some of their, the big myths being kind of pushed by them and repeated by Peter Dutton include things like, this reform will destroy Australian democracy. Um, I think that's really far-fetched. The reform is absolutely consistent with Australia's legal and political tradition. That's why we designed it the way we did. For example, many people will say it can't override the parliament or they use the word veto, although veto isn't really used in, normally in an Australian context. Nothing can override the Australian Parliament because that's the way the system works. So it was built to respect parliamentary sovereignty. And as I said before, it allows you to make representations to the executive, the bureaucrats or government of the day in the Parliament, but no one, there's no legal or constitutional obligation to reply. So it's been very carefully drafted to ensure that it respects the kind of constitutional framework that we have in Australia. And we worked on that for about five to six years from 2017 after Uluru to now. And so I think that's important because the principle of what we're trying to do here is to provide Indigenous peoples with the capacity to influence democratic decision-making. So it has to be something that fits within the culture of Australian democracy It's not something that's bigger or broader than that. And it's utterly consistent with Australia's international obligations Mm. under the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, which says all Indigenous rights sit under the state. You know, you, you can't use the drip to set up another state. And that the rights that are contained in that declaration have to sit under Australian democracy or any democracy. I mean, it's written for the whole world. And this is a particular right that they call the right to participation or the right to political 
participation and effectively it's a very common way in which liberal democracies around the world um, allow First Nations peoples to participate in the democratic life of the state. Mm. And that that comes from a basic principle that if you have Indigenous peoples involved in the laws and policies that are made about them, they're more likely to be effective. Mm. Mm. Here in Australia we have very poor quality laws and policies that we know aren't working and they're not working because Indigenous peoples aren't influencing them. Mm. Mm. I think one of the biggest claims is probably the one around the destruction of democracy, which I think is just really over the top. Another argument is around equality, that it violates equality, but equality is a very complex thing in Australia. Australia has always been committed to the notion that actually equality doesn't exist and that there are some people that need a kind of hand up to reach the same threshold of a dignified human life of all Australians. Mm. Um, and that's our, that sits behind our commitment to universal health care. It sits behind our commitment to social welfare. It's it sits behind our commitment to social housing. You know, we've always been committed to these really fundamental social beliefs that actually the state can give a hand up to people so that we 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 can be equal with each other. But to be equal, it does sometimes require uh, initiatives or measures that we call substantive equality that allow people to have a, that hand up. Now, the constitutional amendment isn't to do with substantive equality because it's not special rights so you're not kind of lifting people up to be kind of at the same level of Australian democracy it's a recognition as the high court has said has as Mabo said as our legal and political system says of a distinct cultural group and it's a recognition of the distinctiveness of First Nations peoples and their connection to land that we recognise in common law and statutory law in every jurisdiction and at a Commonwealth level, and that what we're saying is this cultural distinctive group that predates the arrivals or the arrival of the British is significant to this country. So we would like to recognise them in their 60,000-year history, mm-hmm. and a part of recognising them is allowing them to have a voice to the parliament. Mm. Go figure. Yeah, go figure. <laughs> it is really basic. And it's a kind of fundamental form of respect and dignity because, of course, when the Australian constitutional system was drafted in the 1890s, you know, the discussion was about Aboriginal people dying out Mm, mm. and it was the kind of tail end of protection and protection was set up because of the frontier wars and the indiscriminate killings. And so, you know, the Australian constitutional system excluded expressly Aboriginal people from the countenance of the of the actual work of the constitution. So our, our system is built in with with that kind of racism and inequality. Um, and it was corrected in 1967 um, where the exclusion of Aboriginal people was addressed, but it kind of put us in a neutral situation. It didn't empower us. And we think that this is a really important next step post-67 is the actual empowerment of First Nations peoples to take control over their lives so their lives aren't dictated by bureaucrats in Canberra, which is the problem. All we have is bureaucrats and politicians Mm, who mm. think they know better, who think they know best, and they don't allow Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to have a voice. I don't think that's hyperbole. I think that is why we're in the state that we're in. Yeah. Yes, there are some 
who who have a voice and you see that playing out now but um one of the most prominent is Jacinta and then there's Lydia and then there's Linda but they're all politicians yeah Yeah, that's all we hear from and then there's prominent men like Warren Mundine etc but where are the women well, the gender stuff I'm really thinking about because last week it was all male faces, male men, 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 and I'm like, where's Arnie Pat? Yeah, we, we have two co-chairs, Alira Davis and Bridget Karma, who are amazing kind of ambassadors for young Aboriginal Australia. Where where are they? And we know mm-hmm. that Gen Gen Z is like leading the nation as mm-hmm. as yes voters. Where are their faces? Yeah. Where are the faces of Australians who support this? And especially with Gen Z, we had a very big meeting in Brisbane on the weekend choosing, well, not choosing, sorry, with the Uluru referendum, um, the Uluru youth who are, who are now referendum ambassadors. And um, and I was just thinking, like, this is, they were saying, this is our future. We inherit this. Like, we inherit this. And I'm like, where is Gen Z in this conversation? Because they will inherit this. This is their future. And the country needs to listen to what they're saying. And it's a really large proportion of the of Gen Z who are saying yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a little less Peter Dutton on our screens and a little bit more yeah. indigenous Gen Z would be, uh, I think, you know, welcomed by many. Yeah, I agree, I agree. <laughs> Megan, I am conscious of your time, but I did want to ask one last question. And it goes to, you know, some of the, the points that you've just raised Um if you were to distill the message, what's one thing that you would want all Australians to keep in mind when they cast their vote in the referendum later this year? So I can't guarantee that it's this is short. But the way I've been thinking about it lately is that the research is really stark. Most Australians haven't met a First Nations person. And that's quite a striking statistic because it explains why the yes vote is so susceptible to, to the no vote because it, some Australians are really struggling to understand how the voice will make a difference. And, and that makes a lot of sense because most Australians don't know what it's like to be an Aboriginal person or a Torres Strait Islander person living in these communities that are just completely run by, you know, bureaucrats in Canberra or politicians. And it's a really, um, you know, Australians can see there's a problem so I think most Australians will accept the status quo isn't great for our people and that there needs to be change. The problem is, you know, some are struggling to see, well, how, how does the voice make the change and how can it bring about change? And, you know, the voice comes from a process that had started in 2011 with Julia Gillard and from 2011 to now, 2023, it's 12 years. And we've had seven different processes or mechanisms and 10 reports in that period. And it's a lot in plain sight. But the game changer was the Uluru Statement from the heart. And the game changer was the Referendum Council because as members of the Referendum Council, we decided to go out and ask First Nations people what is meaningful recognition. That's the question that should have been asked at the beginning. And we ran these dialogues in the regions And we ran them with people who generally don't have a voice. So they're not, you know, the CEOs of health services or legal services. They're people who live in community at home, choose to live there, choose to devote their lives to the service of their people. 
And they had some really important things to say. And one of the things that they said was, we are voiceless and powerless in our own communities. And there are all these Aboriginal people who talk on our behalf and there's politicians and bureaucrats, but none of them represent us. And if we could be heard, if we could venture an opinion on the things that are going on that will impact on us, because it is the people in communities who, you know, generally, you know, a lot have kind of low income, low satisfaction jobs or low income, high satisfaction jobs because it's the service of their communities. They say they never get to give input. And it's part of why closing the gap failed the first time around, why closing the gap is failing, clearly flat failing again. Um, it's why we can't turn around those statistics because there's this huge kind of industry that's been created on the back of Indigenous disadvantage. I think the Productivity Commission says it's $30 billion, but they also say 27% of that gets to Aboriginal communities. So where's the other 73% going? Nobody knows. So there's a lot of people um, with their hand out taking money that is meant for communities. It's not hitting the ground in communities. Um, but no one will, will resolve the problem. And one of the problems with the legal and political system we have is no one will do anything in the Aboriginal space because it's not a big electoral calculus for either party because our numbers are too tiny. And then the other fact is most of our communities are impecunious, meaning they don't have money. And then, yes, we have a lot of land space or land, but we can't do anything with that land. It's inalienable. And so you've got this kind of perfect storm where um, communities actually do not drive any of the law and policy that impacts upon them, but it's all done by outsiders. And a big part of the Uluru Statement from the Heart was saying, actually, we live in communities. We see this day in, day out. We know our people and we say that we should drive the agenda and we should have a say. And that goes to the heart of the voice to parliament. Governments, bureaucrats, parliaments, politicians, they don't and won't do things out of the goodness of their heart. They just mm. won't. Mm. And people will say, oh, just legislate first or, oh, or we could do something else, but it doesn't have to be constitutional. No, the reason why First Nations people want it in the constitution is because, one, it creates a culture of respect because you're recognising First Nations people but two, it's using the force of law, the Australian constitution, to mandate us being at the table. Because if this referendum didn't get up, I can assure you in the next three to ten years, nobody is going to listen to what it is communities say because they haven't before, because they don't legally have to, and they're not mandated to listen. We're not asking people to just take on board what we say and, and nobody gets to say in it. It's, it's not that veto. We're just offering an opinion. That is it. We are offering an opinion. That is what the voice is about. That is what representations are. And partly some in our community say that's not enough. You know, you need to force the government to respond. But this, as you can see in the referendum debate, this is the threshold of where Australian legal and political debate will go. And, and this is what the reform is. And so the legal risk is not significant. We have almost, you know, unanimous high court judges 
former High Court judges and Chief Justices saying there is very, very minuscule, if any, legal risk. They are the people that are expert in the Constitution. Brett Walker, Senior Counsel, he is the barrister in Australia who has the biggest constitutional practice in the country. And he says that the risk is minuscule. And he says that the arguments that the no case make are too silly for words. So it's really important for Australians to keep in mind that up until Dutton said no, there was generally bipartisan support with very high yes vote. But once Dutton said no, Australians tended to go out and off into their camps. So it went down an ideological track. So you've got Labor versus LNP, and that's how it's tracking now. And that's why the numbers have got shorter, because people are voting along party lines. But I just end with one thing, and that is to say, when we issued the Uluru Statement from the heart, we decided not to hand over a petition or a painting to politicians, as has happened in the past, where it's then taken back to Canberra and it's, it's hung on the walls of Parliament and never implemented. We decided instead to not have a painting at all, but to read out a statement that we wrote to the Australian people, which we call a sign of friendship, an olive branch, an expression of love to the Australian people, that despite all that has happened to our people, we want Australians to walk with us in this movement of the Australian people for a better future. And that's what the Uluru Statement is about. It's about saying to Aussies, you don't trust politicians like us. We understand that. But we cannot get change without you backing it and mm. you helping us. Mm. And that's what we need. We need a majority of Australians and a majority of states to say, yeah, we've never tried this. We don't want to keep the status quo. So let's let's do it. Let's be on the right side of history. Yeah. Show some solidarity on it. Um, Professor Megan Davis, thank you so much for your advocacy on this issue and across the board. Um, and thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me.